In today's show, we hear what happens when biology and engineering come together. They'll form a new subject called bioengineering. An expert at Cambridge University will tell how material science can be put to use in medicine, where there's a need to create surgical implants and new tissues. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. Our guest, Dr Michelle Oyen, leads the bioengineering at the University of Cambridge. She studied at Michigan State University and the University of Minnesota. Her subjects include material science, engineering mechanics, and biophysical sciences. Sounds like a lot of maths, physics, and fun. Roger met with Michelle at the Department of Engineering, so let's have a listen to his chat with Dr. Oyen. Okay, what do you do here? Well, the department is engineering, which it's a huge department. It's more than 10% of the university, and it's all different types of engineering. So we have mechanical engineers and aerospace engineers and manufacturing engineers and all different types of engineering, but I came here to help start the bioengineering program. Bioengineering, that doesn't sound like gears, cogs, gearboxes or anything like that. Bioengineering is application of engineering principles to solve problems in medicine, um, but it also includes a component of studying the natural world using engineering techniques. So we sometimes use the same sorts of machines that you would use to study, say, metals, except that we're in studying Bone. Are there some actual practical applications? There are totally practical applications. Bone is actually a really good example because we study bone for two totally different reasons. So we study bone because we want to be able to fix people's bones. So if you have somebody who's got, say, a cancerous tumor, they might have to remove a large chunk of bone, and then you would like to be able to replace that with something that's bone-like mm-hmm. instead of something like metal that has very mismatched properties and doesn't always get along very well with the living parts of the body. Mm. So fixing people's bones is one reason to study bone. But we also study bone because it's an interesting material. It's very strong, tough, lightweight, and so it has, it's a composite material, just like the composites that make up modern aircraft. So the, the Dreamliner and the A380 have, you hear a lot of talk about how they have lots of composite materials in them, while natural materials are composite materials as well. And so by studying natural composite materials, we can think about what we call biomimicry, you're trying to imitate some of the principles that we see in natural materials and to use them in an engineering context. So not to literally copy bone, but to try and understand how bone works so that we can use some of what we find out there to design better engineering materials. You've well, been making bone? Yeah, we make bone. We make we make different sorts of materials. So we've got I guess three different classes of materials that we've been making by trying to imitate nature. So we've got bone-like materials, we've got materials that are like eggshell, again, a very tough material, something you have to whack pretty hard against the countertop or against the side of a bowl in order to get it to crack open. So that's another tough material that might be interesting. And then there's also soft tissue materials, so things that are like your skin. So instead of being hard like bone or like an eggshell, you can have materials that are like a soft tissue, which again are very tough. And the best example of this is that most of the time, if you break a bone, 
you don't see it. Your skin is very tough, and so the energy goes into breaking the bone, but the bone remains contained within the skin because the skin is actually effectively tougher than the bone. You must use instruments. Mm -hmm. what, what sorts of things do you use to be microscope type things? We use microscopes to look at things, but the workhorse in my research group is mechanical testing equipment. Mm -hmm. um, and so we use the same sorts of what we call universal test frames. So you take a piece of material and you maybe grab it on both ends and then you pull on it and you measure the forces that it takes to pull on it. And then from that, you can calculate properties of the material like its stiffness and its toughness. And so we do that using the sorts of instruments that were designed for testing high-strength steel, except, again, we're testing bones and corneas from the eye and teeth and cartilage in the knee joints. And even we've done some work on the amniotic sac, so the breaking of the waters and birth, trying to understand the forces involved with that and why sometimes it goes wrong and you end up with premature birth. So what you, what's your favourite unit? My favorite unit of measurement is probably, at the moment, the kilopascal. Okay, and this is useful in amniocentesis? <laughs> this is useful in telling you the stiffness of something. And so when you think about metals, you're usually working with materials that have gigapascals of stiffness. And when you're talking about soft tissues, then you're down in this kilopascal to megapascal. So it's all across the SI range. Okay. Describe a machine which measures bone. Okay. So as I said, you would often test bone one of two different ways. So one way is to grab both ends of it and to pull on it in tension. And that's one way of measuring things, but it's got a lot of challenges because it can be very hard to hold bones. And of course, the joke about this is, is a very, very engineering joke. So there's a standard test specimen for measuring tensile strength of things, and it's called a dog bone shape. But it's a very regular dog bone shape. So it's a, maybe a cylindrical specimen with larger cylindrical ends to it, like a, a biscuit that you would buy to give to your pet Fido. And of course, real bones are not regularly shaped. And so the classic joke is dog bones are not actually dog bone shaped. And therefore, we have to design customized ways of holding the bone in order to try to pull on it in tension in order to measure its properties. So because of that, we sometimes do something a little bit simpler, which is we take and we push on the bone locally. So we do what we call an indentation test, where we have a local probe and we have the bone just sitting there and it can be curved surface and it can be in any shape and we can then push on it locally and measure the local properties without having to come up with a way to try and grab it to pull on it. Okay. So presumably these measurements are all part of some project? I mean, how close have you got to a replacement for a jaw which is needed to be removed and replaced? So it's a really interesting problem. So a, a jawbone is actually a really good example because that's something that's been going on quite a lot in the last couple of years with the rise of 3D printing. So if you think mm -hmm. about a jawbone, you mm -hmm. have two different sets of constraints that you're worrying about. One is the shape, so you've got a geometrical constraint, and then you've got the material and so people have been working on the two different sides of it. So with the shape 
problem, there has been a rise in the last few years of actually 3D printing customized medical implants for things like missing jawbone or a piece of missing skull. And in those cases, they get the shape really right by using 3D printing, but then they're not going to be printing out of a bone material. Okay, so they're printing out of some sort of plastic material. And we've been working on it more on the other side. So we've been working on making the bone like material, but we at the moment make it sort of in lumps. We don't really have the ability to do the 3D printing to get that exquisitely matched shape perfect for the individual patient based on looking at their own x-rays or CT scans. So there's a challenge there in trying to match up the materials and the geometry both. So what is the bone that you're making made of? This is where the whole part where you study it first and you figure out what it's doing and then you try and recreate it. So we look at what bone is naturally made of and it's naturally made of roughly three things. So it's made of water because Mm -hmm. of course we're bags of water and so there's always going to be some water in our tissues. It's made of protein and that protein is collagen, which is the ubiquitous protein where 30% of our protein is in in human beings is is collagen. And then there's mineral, and the mineral is called hydroxyapatite, and it's geological analog um, to other appetites. There's fluoroapatite that you'd find in caves and things. Hydroxyapatite is the kind we have. So you've got a mineral, a polymer and water. And so when we go to make new bone, we try and replicate that. The process we've been using is in solution, so it's in water. We add gelatin, which is denatured collagen, and that is then the protein. So we're using essentially the same sort of protein that is that is in the bone to begin with. And then we are trying to form the hydroxyapatite. So we're making it, it's a, it's a calcium phosphate, and so we're making it from calcium and phosphorus and ions. Did I read on your website something about hydrogels? Mm-hmm. Wow, what was going on there? So hydrogels are a really fun class of materials that are, well, for many purposes, um, but the reason we're interested in them is because they are largely made of water, which means they're very biocompatible. They work very well on making implants or making coatings on implants. They're very cell-friendly, and so they are materials that we can use to make other things that are less biocompatible, we can make them more biocompatible by putting hydrogel coatings on them or by making things out of hydrogels. The best way to think about what hydrogel is, is to think about jelly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that is a hydrogel and in fact is a hydrogel of gelatin that I was just talking about with bone. So jelly is hydrated gelatin. And that's exactly what a hydrogel is. So when it's, you know, kind of wiggly and bouncy and you can push on it and it squishes around, that's exactly what we're talking about with hydrogels. And in fact, we have industrial sized canisters of gelatin in our lab that we use for making these hydrogels and they're just not flavored, which is why they're different than jelly, but it's the same material and it's the same protein. Okay, so that's a raw material for birthdays. Well, it's an important distinction that it's not vegetarian. (laughs) So jelly is not vegetarian, and that means that a lot of nice puddings are also not vegetarian. So if you go to a fancy dinner and you are a vegetarian and they bring you a bowl of fruit instead of a nice pudding, it's probably because they've used some gelatin in the dessert. Now, there's an alternative vegetarian option, 
which is called agar, mm -hmm. and it's based on a seaweed. Mm -hmm. And so it's a vegetarian alternative. It also makes hydrogels, and it's actually very common in Chinese food. So you can find it in uh, Chinese grocery stores. Okay, in sheets and things. Mm -hmm. And you can use it in the same way as you would use gelatin in cooking, but it's actually vegetarian because it's seaweed derived instead of being derived from collagen. So how is the hydrogel relevant. As I said, they're very biocompatible. And so they're of interest in a lot of tissue engineering applications. So tissue engineering is when you have a body part that's broken down and instead of replacing it with something that's non-living you try and replace it with something that's living so you take and you make a porous scaffold and then you put some cells onto it and it could be some cells from your own body so you don't have a transplant type rejection issue and so hydrogels are very popular materials for this kind of an approach so trying to put some cells say your cartilage is broken down you have osteoarthritis researchers are considering putting cartilage cells into a hydrogel and then trying to use that as a sort of living implant to replace the cartilage. Once you've understood the various materials, then what's your next challenge? There's a lot of challenges with tissue engineering in particular, and as an idea of a field, it's been around for a while now, for dozens of years, but it hasn't translated yet to broad clinical implementation. And it's because the mechanical properties of hydrogels are quite poor in some cases relative to engineering materials, we would call solid polymers and metals, things like that. So there's challenges in getting the hydrogel mechanical properties improved. And that's one of the things that we're working on in our research is to try and study and improve hydrogel mechanical properties. And then obviously, anytime you want to implant something into people, it has to go through a very long review process. And this is something that is very government regulated. You think of Steve Jobs in the you know garage start of Apple computers. Well, you can't have an equivalent in a medical device company. You can't start in your garage. You can't ask your doctor friend to just pop something in under the skin of your friend. It's just completely unethical. So you have to design your product, do all of your good engineering, but then you have to turn over to going through a regulatory pathway and ethics and medical device regulations and trying to get things approved for use in real human beings. And that's not a trivial process, nor is it cheap. Okay. So, so far we've been talking about engineering, but you haven't mentioned cogs, gears or levers at all. <laughs> no, engineering is an interesting thing because there's a perception of what engineering was when it really became a profession. So say we were looking at the end of the 19th century and we're thinking about Brunel and we're thinking about the great industrial revolution and the absolute golden age of British engineering. Well, that's only one kind of engineering. So what I do in bioengineering is still engineering, but it's a different bit of it. Civil engineering and construction are things that a lot of people think about when they think of engineering. And in fact, it's a, a, a personal crusade that I have at the moment against the fact that every time you see the word engineer in a British newspaper, you see a picture of a person wearing a hard hat. Okay. 
And I've never worn a hard hat in my life, to my knowledge. I, I, I cannot recall ever having worn a hard hat. I've been an engineer for close to 20 years now. I have my first engineering degree from the middle of the 1990s. And I've managed to go this entire time without wearing a hard hat. And I think there's a danger in that perception of engineering and construction being the only types of things that are engineering. What I'm talking about with bioengineering is engineering. We also do some work in nanotechnology. That's also engineering. Again, no hard hats, very, very small things. <laughs> so I, I think it's important that it's clear that engineering is a much broader field than people realize. And in fact, it's something that has a lot of opportunities that don't just involve the classic planes, trains, and automobiles. So there's a lot of opportunities, especially in the developing world, for helping with water engineering and with water treatment and helping. I mean, there are so many ways that it's possible to help people in the developing world with engineering, doing what I'm trying to do and helping people in the medical field with engineering. There's also a whole established relationship between engineers and hospitals. You go into a hospital these days and there's a lot of very high-tech equipment. Well, that all requires interfacing between engineers and medical doctors. And so it's, it's a much broader field than just the sort of construction and hard hats. And the common denominator in engineering, can you get engineering down to a sentence or two? Applied physics and mathematics is really what it comes down to. So we're not doing particle physics. We're doing very practical things. We're doing hands-on measurements. We're sometimes doing experiments in silico or in a computer. We're doing computational modeling, but it's all very much applications of physics and mathematics principles. Okay, and now just for the fun of the question, the difference between engineering and technology... This is one where my yankness gets me into trouble. There's a big difference between that distinction in the United States and in the United Kingdom. So I've been here for seven and a half years, and the word engineer even isn't used the same way as it is in the United States. So here, when you have a problem with your washing machine or your boiler, you call an engineer. Yes. In the U.S., an engineer is a professional who has a degree and has done a lot of calculus, okay. whereas if your washing machine needs repair, you call a technician. technician. And that's something that makes that distinction of what engineering is slightly difficult for me here in the UK because I'm used to thinking of it in my United States manner that an engineer is what I do <laughs> but that's a very strict definition of a, a certain level of education and a certain type of engineering education. And what seduced you into engineering? I was the typical young child who showed an aptitude for mathematics and I happened to have a father who, although himself in business, worked in technology. So he worked at Honeywell, a very large technology company. And so when he saw the spark for mathematics in me, he got me mentors from a very young age and sort of coaxed me into engineering. And it's interesting because, especially with young girls, getting them interested in engineering, some research showed that most girls and young women who go into engineering have either a close friend or a family member who's an engineer. So people don't find engineering if they don't know somebody who is one. Uh -huh. And that's something I hope 
will change in the future because I think that the the British population especially has a, an appalling rate of female engineers relative to male engineers. It's on it's in the single digits of percent, and I think that's mostly because if a young girl doesn't have somebody like my dad who can tell them what engineering is and can kind of help coax them in that direction, then they might just not know about it. And so it's a very strange beast. People know what physics is. They see Brian Cox on television and they know what that is. But people don't necessarily know what engineering is. So there's an educational campaign here, especially with these newer and modern types of engineering that are different, like bioengineering. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michelle. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. Many thanks to Dr. Michelle Oyen talking there with our Roger Frost. You can also follow Michelle's research on her website called O-Y-E-N-L-A-B, that's oyenlab.org. And there's our podcast page you can check out with links to her research on cambridge105.fm. Interesting interview, Roger. Thank you, Chris. Um, so you must have come across hydrodrails yourself in your studies. Uh, yeah, and they occur in nature in more places than you might think. So, you know, we tend to think of hydrogels in medicine. Yeah, right? and I, I was thinking of them in jellies and trifles and things. <laughs> Yum. Uh, but they're not just found in animals. Hydrogels are found in plants too. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because Michelle mentioned this agar from seaweed, didn't she? Yes, and in the last few years, researchers have actually discovered hydrogels inside the water pipes of flowering plants. Okay, let's be technical. By water pipes, you mean xylem tissue, don't exactly. you? Exactly. Oh, I'm impressed, Roger. So you'll see a pectin hydrogel where these xylem cells connect to one another, and this hydrogel affects the rate of water flow through the transport pits, which influences how much the plant can photosynthesize and how well it can survive drought. Okay, well, that's a little bit of substance with a very big impact. Mm-hmm. You know, I really do like this idea of engineering hydrogel to make them do our bidding. Oh, me too. And over the last few decades, science has created what we're calling smart hydrogel. Huh? Smart hydrogel. Could one ever rival my double-digit IQ, perhaps? I think, I think you're safe on that score, Roger. Uh, but these hydrogels are built to respond to signals like pH, temperature, light, and even DNA. And now that we're talking about it, there was an article on phys.org about a new smart hydrogel that delivers a medicine in response to mechanical force. Okay, you've got to tell us what that does. Indeed, I will. Well, researchers at the University of Delaware, who are now collaborating with the team at Rush University in Chicago, have made a hydrogel based on hyaluronic acid. And when this hydrogel is injected into the leg joints of patients with osteoarthritis, it releases drug molecules that reduce inflammation, get this, while the patients are walking around. How cool is that? Oh, that sounds very smart. So this hyaluronic acid is present naturally in cartilage. so Exactly. So it's biocompatible, which just means that our bodies wouldn't reject it. And early test results in animal models are already showing that it's true. Okay. Well, now we just heard that Michelle was growing bone and also that 3D printers could create implants that perfectly match a patient's shape. Mm -hmm. And if you're curious to see a 3D printer in action replicating a human jaw, you can check out the Royal Society Summer Science YouTube video. And Roger, I think we talked about that on our 13th July show, right? Okay. I'll take that as a reminder to put a link to that video on our podcast page. Thank you, Chris. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio, Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website, www.cambridge105.fm. You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes Store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. 
Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Crease. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. <laughs>